One of the things we like to remember as we live our lives, first of all, welcome to the National Capital Bible Church for our Bible class this evening in Deuteronomy. We'll be in Deuteronomy, the end of chapter 12 and then chapter 13. But one of the things we remember, one of the verses that we should constantly remember is in First Thessalonians 5. First Thessalonians, Thessalonians 5, verse 16, 17, and 18, that we are to, to rejoice always, always rejoicing, praying without ceasing, and in everything giving thanks, because this is the will of God in Christ for us. Therefore, we there, we face nothing. We whether it's trials or even pleasures, but we're in thankful. We rejoice. We give thanks, and we're constantly in prayer. And of course, being in prayer, constantly in prayer, we realize that we cannot be prayer in every second, minute, hour. But we do know that we can be prepared to do so. So as we prepare for our study this evening, let's take a few seconds for closing our eyes, bowing our heads. This is our night for spiritual. This is our opportunity for spiritual preparation so that we will be as effective as possible. God, the Holy Spirit can lead us as we study our passages in Deuteronomy. So closing our eyes, bowing our heads, giving you a few seconds Then I'll open us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for these passages and the lessons that go with them. We're thankful that we have the opportunity to study the Word of God. We have the opportunity to learn from uh, Israel, from your relationship, Father, with them. And, Father, understanding that we have a similar relationship. We're thankful for your love. We're thankful for your provision. We're thankful for your protection, Father. And we're thankful that we can be called your people. We're thankful also, Father, for the fact that we have a relationship with you through your Lord, through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're thankful for your love for him, his love for you, and for your perfect plan that sent him to the cross to provide for redemption for us. And simply by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have a marvelous, a perfect relationship with you. And that relationship can never be broken. Simply by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ's finished work on the cross. We ask now for God the Holy Spirit to uh, teach us, help us, as we study this passage of Scripture, 
this evening in Deuteronomy 12 and Deuteronomy 13. And we pray, Father, that we'll be able to apply it to our lives as we, as we study. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. This evening, as we begin, I think I may have remembered, mentioned something on Sunday about an MRI that I was going to have on Monday. I had the uh, MRI on the morning, Monday morning. Saw the neuro-oncologist early in the afternoon and then saw the neuro-radiologist yesterday. And the assessment is that the the image shows that the tumor is still growing. Now, there is also a possibility that there's swelling of the tumor simply because of the success of the immunotherapy. Both doctors believe that continuing to observe the situation and having another MRI sometime in December, I think it's the second, in December is prudent. So uh, we'll continue to have a an enjoyable Thanksgiving and prepare for Christmas. Everything is going to be just fine. It's in the Lord's hands. And I'm thankful for the doctors I have. I'm thankful for the treatment. And I'm thankful for the Word of God that we are studying tonight. So Deuteronomy, the end of chapter 12. We are in that section of Deuteronomy that is developing the covenant fellowship chapters 12 through the end of chapter 26 last week i went through this part of deuteronomy uh, the introduction 12:1 the law of the single sanctuary meaning that uh, israel was not to find uh, other locations whether it be the the high hills, or whether it be a, a particular green tree somewhere, or certainly not uh, any of the locations that the Canaanite, where the Canaanites had worshipped. But as we've studied in the past, that God is exclusive, and he will designate the location where they are to obey, where they are to worship. And so we've seen these um, points as we worked our way through chapter 12. Now, I made one adjustment because we didn't finish chapter 12 at the last week. Uh, and I changed the last one, the instructions about what to offer in worship. Chapter 12, 15 to 28, I had 32 there or maybe 31 But that's as far as we arrived last week. So this week, we are now in point two, the repression of idolatry. This was one of the greatest challenges that Israel had uh, during their lives, uh, during the nation, was idolatry. And we will study the end of chapter 12, verse 29 verse 29, and we will go through through chapter 13 to the end of the last verse, verse 18. Now, this is going to be fairly simple outline. 
First of all, the avoidance of pagan cultic practice could even be plural because there certainly had many of them. But this will be the last of chapter 12, 12, 29 to 32. Um, when we get to verse 32, we'll see that there are some versions that connect 32 to chapter 13. Either way, it's not a problem because really the text was written without chapters. So it's just simply whether the context supports verse 32 with the previous topic or the next prop, next topic. And frankly, uh, it can go either way. So we have the avoidance of pagan cultic practice. Secondly, we have the solicitation to idolatry by a false prophet. We'll see that in verses 1 through 5 in chapter 13. Third, we have the solicitation to idolatry by family members or friends. That's verses 6 through 11. And then the destruction of an apostate town, verses 12 through 18. All of these are very well laid out by Moses. And as we begin, it's important for us to realize, again, that these passages, uh, historical as they are by Moses and the second generation of the Israelites who departed from Egypt, this is recorded for our benefit. And it's up to us to study it, to understand it, but then also understand the lessons that Moses was teaching to the uh, to the Israelites and how those lessons can be applied to us. And they're wonderful lessons. So tonight, let's begin verse 29 in chapter 12. Chapter 12, verse 29. Let me read through to 32. When the Lord your God cuts off from before you the nations which you go to dispossess, and you displace them and dwell in their land. Take heed, guard yourself, that you are not ensnared, that you are not enticed to follow them. These other nations, the other people that were there, the Canaanites, that you do not follow them after they are destroyed from before you, and that you do not inquire after their gods. In other words, don't have any curiosity about their gods, how they worshipped. Saying, how did these nations serve their gods, worship their gods? I also will do likewise. I said, I wonder how successful that looks like they were very successful here. Maybe I'll follow their gods. Verse 31. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abomination to the Lord, which he hates, which he uh, rejects, they have done to their gods. For they burn even their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. And we'll remember studying this in Exodus and Numbers in 
even as we work through the historical books, that this is Molech. Molech uh, was the god of fire. And for whatever reason, the Canaanites decided that sacrificing their children was a way to be blessed. And the Israelites drifted into that area as well. And then verse 32, which can go with 30 with 13 or be the conclusion of this pat this paragraph whatever i command you be careful to observe it you shall not add it or take away from it so whatever i command you here's the mosaic law that's the command the commands that i'm giving you you are to be careful you are to guard yourselves and to do the law you shall not add to it or take away from it. I'll have more to say about that when we get to verse 32. All right. One of the focuses of this section of Deuteronomy is the Lord saying that we need to remove the Canaanites. We need to remove these pagan people and their behavior, their practices, because... If we uh, do not do so, it's very likely that we will follow them. We can be enticed. And so the Lord's desire here is to teach to remove the temptation of the Canaanite nations. But, of course, the Israelites, as we know from our study of history, uh, the Israelite histories, were responsible, failed at various times, even though they were commanded not to imitate the practices of the Canaanites. So in verse 21, or verse 29, when the Lord your God cuts off, and this is a wonderful translation, it's very little, cut off, but the idea is to destroy. When the Lord your God destroys, cuts off, from before you the nations which you go to dispossess, and you displace them and dwell in their land, take Heed, shamar, guard yourself. I like that word. Um, take heed uh, is probably an older English way of saying this. Uh, guarding yourself is is the word here. Shamar, we've heard this many times. Guard yourselves that you are not ensnared. And the word here for ensnared in the Hebrew means that you're not struck. We would translate it that you are not enticed, you're not struck by the temptation is a way that, that we should understand this. That you are not ensnared, that you're not enticed to follow them after they are destroyed from before you and that you do not inquire, you're not curious after their gods saying, how did these nations serve, worship their gods? I also will do likewise. So what we see here is that the conquest was God's. God is going to take Israel into the land, and it says that that Israel would displace them. They will displace them uh, as they follow the Lord through the nation, clearing the, the nations. 
and they would displace them. They would simply move into those areas. It says you will displace them and dwell in their land. Unfortunately, we'll see later that Israel eventually does not displace the, those nations completely. And, in fact, they follow uh, many of the pagan religious ways. Verse 31, you shall not worship. You shall not behave towards the Lord your God in that way, the way that they worshipped. For every abomination, and we could say every detestable thing, to the Lord, which you shall not do that to the Lord, which he hates, which he rejects, which he detests, for they have done that with their gods, for they burn even their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. So God detested this. I mean, it's not very hard for us to understand that God would detest this. Uh, the word here for hate is sane, and it does mean to hate. And that can easily be applied by us. But God hates all sin. This happens to be what we would probably call a significantly severe type of sin. So God detested the Canaanite practice. And for two reasons, we'll see that, first of all, uh, it was a concern that his children would be enticed by them. And then secondly, because of the abomination. Abomination indicates the strongest form of revulsion and distaste of God towards what the Canaanites were doing. As a matter of fact, it was because of the severity of these sins that God removed them. You may remember that Abraham was promised that this would be his land, but that his people, his descendants, would depart for 400 years. And the reason they would be, they would go to Egypt was probably several reasons. Number one, because the nation, his, Abraham's descendants needed to grow into a nation and they would be incubated down in Egypt. But also, uh, they would, they would take, be taken away from the Canaanite religions in Canaan. And thirdly, another reason was God was going to give the Canaanites 400 years before he returned and destroyed them. And so that's what's being described here, this abomination. They did not change their ways. As a matter of fact, they became even worse. So this is an example of one of the worst Canaanite practices, and that was to offer their children as, as sacrifices. Also notice that it's, he, it says that he didn't want any of the Israelites living with the Canaanites because they might become curious. And a simple curiosity about evil religions eventually lead us to destruction. Every now and then, of course, in history, we're studying the various religions of uh, other nations. But uh, having a curiosity uh, that leads us 
to having a positive interest towards it is dangerous. And that's what he's saying here. The same warning is repeated by the Apostle Paul. He says, for it is shameful even to mention with a disobedient what what the disobedient do in secret. We'll see here in a moment of the secret that's mentioned during this passage. He says, we can be enticed the same way by simply being curious about the pagan society. And we should avoid pagan behavior. We encounter it very often every day in our society, and we need to avoid it. Verse 32 Verse 32, whatever I command you, be careful. Shamar, guard yourselves, as I said, to observe, to do it, the Mosaic law. You shall not add to it nor take away from it. God's law is perfect. There's no possible way that we can add to God's perfect law. The only thing that we can do is by lessening it, by damaging it. So we need to avoid being curious about other items, and we also need to make sure that we're not adding to the law from the New Testament now, of course, and adding to it or taking away from it. We can't improve it by human addition. All right, now the solicitation to idolatry by a false prophet Chapter 13, 1 through 5. We've read this passage in the past, and this tells us, helps us to understand some of the challenges that we have today in the modern church. Chapter 13, verse 1. If there arise among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and he gives you a sign or wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes to pass, of which he spoke to you, saying, Let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them. I like the word here for worship. Let us worship them. Verse 3, You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God. With, uh, whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. You shall serve him. You shall worship him and hold fast to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has spoken in order to turn you away from the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of bondage to entice you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall put him, you shall put away the evil from your midst. Now, again, sometimes this sounds as if this was severe, too severe. It was exceeded what was needed. But God knew that Israel could be very easily enticed to be unfaithful. And, of course, we know that they did. 
And therefore, in order to remove this from them, the individuals who were trying to mislead them were to be executed. And not only would that mean that they would remove the enticement, but it would also teach them that God is serious. He's very serious about being exclusive. He was their God. He has done all of these things for them, and they should not neglect him or abandon him. After the general prohibitions against involvement in pagan worship, Moses now is going to discuss three ways in which the temptation to idolatry was likely to come. First of all, through a false prophet. That's what we have in verses 1 through 5. Secondly, there's going to be a an enticement through a loved one, verses 6 through 11. And then finally, through false teachers who had been successful in leading an entire town into apostasy. And we'll see that in verses 12 through 18. So point two here under the repression of idolatry is the, the solicitation to idolatry by a false prophet. First of all, if there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and he gives you a sign or a wonder, and the signs or the wonders come to pass, of which he spoke to you, saying, let us go after other gods. In other words, he has a suggestion. He has an enticement. And in order to accomplish this enticement, he has signs and wonders, as we might say, credibility for him. So he gives these signs or wonders as credibility. So he says, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve, let us worship them. So a prophet's or a dreamer's prediction may in fact come to true, come to, uh, to fruition. It may come true. And periodically, we are faced by this fact in our lives. It seems that somebody said, watch this or uh, observe what I'm going to do. So it's possible that a prediction may come true. But if his message contradicts God's commands, the people were to trust God and his word rather than their experience of a miracle. And we encounter this very often. If human experience seems to contradict God's clear teaching, the Israelites were to bow bow in submission to God's commands for his word is true. Let me continue for a moment, and then I'll address this for us. Verse 3. You shall not listen to the words of the prophet Shema. You shall not listen, you shall not hear it, and you certainly should not obey it. The words of the prophet, or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. If you do, then you're not going to be distracted by this information, this activity. So we're told that you should not even listen 
do not even consider the message. Miraculous signs. Every now and then we'll encounter someone who uh, believes that they are able to commit, affect miraculous signs. But miraculous signs alone were never meant to be a test of truth. Miraculous, uh, miraculous happen in many religions because Satan uses false religions and false prophets to deceive the world. Therefore, Moses warned the people that the standard for truth must never be a miraculous de- sign or wonder. Uh, we can be distracted by uh, nature. Something happens in nature and we think, oh my goodness, that's, that's a sign. That's uh, a wonder. But it isn't. And even if it is, if it doesn't align with the word of God, then we set it aside. So warn, so Moses warned the people that the standard for truth must never be a miraculous sign or wonder or any other area of human experience. The, str- the standard of truth is the word of God. Now, let me give you a couple examples here that I know that you all have encountered one way or another. I've had people come to me and say, are you, are you sure that we're not, we don't have the gift of tongues today? I heard someone at such and such church and someone stood up and was speaking in languages or in tongues. And it, it certainly sounded uh, authentic to me. And my first question to them is, did you understand what they were saying? And of course, the answer is, well, no. Then what spiritual benefit was it to you? Well, it may not have been benefit for me, but the person looked like they were really spiritual. They were really being lifted by these tongues, these these languages. I said, what was the purpose of tongues? It was to edify others, not the self. And so if there's no one there who understands what the individual saying, then it's not the gift of tongues. It may be something else, but it's not the gift of tongues. I've had people ask me, I think I've mentioned this to you in the past, uh, when I was teaching uh, for Capital Bible Seminary, I've had, had people come and say, how can I give, how can I give, receive the gift of tongues? And being as compassionate and tender as I can be, I said, well, you can't. God either gives it to you or, or he doesn't. And secondly, we don't have, the Bible tells us that we don't have the gift of tongues during the church age, at least the second part of the church age. It was used until we had the the canon of Scripture finished. And the individual almost always says, well, I've heard people speak in tongues. I'd say, well, I can only tell you what the Bible says. So we're challenged by this. I had someone from this church come to me no longer part of this church, but come to me and say, I heard somebody at another church speaking in tongues. It really sounded authentic. I, pretty impressive. And I said, I'm sorry. It's no longer 
a gift that is in effect right now. The Bible tells us this. 1 Corinthians 13. We're going to study this in 1 Corinthians 13. It was used during the a period of time when we did not have the word of God. And this was one of the ways that God, the Holy Spirit, helped individuals with their evangelism. They could speak in another language so that someone who wouldn't normally understand Greek or Hebrew would be able to be evangelized. But that's no longer the case. So this is something that's important for us. Uh, this is, we can't look at chapter 13, 1 through 5 and say, well, it's of no value to me. No, it is, it's important. Uh, healing, healing is another gift that some people believe they have. I have the gift of healing. Well, generally, uh, after observing this, uh, history tells us that it was a fraud. So let's stay with the word of God. Let's don't be impressed by signs and wonders, miracles. Let's be impressed by the word of God and let's be obedient and faithful to it. Verse four, you shall walk. You shall follow after the Lord your God and fear him and keep guard his commandments and obey his voice. You shall serve. You shall worship him and hold fast. Uh, debak. This is one of those Hebrew words that just sticks with me because it's translated to be cling, to cling to something, to cling, to be committed, to be devoted so we are to hold fast. We are to be devoted to him, to God. So the Israelites were to view each solicitation to idolatry as a test of their love for the Lord. And would they pass that test? Though there were always the dangers that they might succumb to a temptation, with each successful resistance to, to sin, their faith in and love for him would grow stronger. So every now and then someone will say, I, I just don't know why this is happening in my life and I don't know why the Lord's allowing this to happen. Well, it's a test. Various tests. It can be a test um, because of our prosperity. It can be mostly, we, ne we never question that. We don't say, Lord, why are you testing me with prosperity? No, we don't question that, but it's easy to be distracted by prosperity. But when we have an adversity, an illness, it's easy for us to say, why, Lord? Well, the word of God tells us that it's a test. Are you going to continue to be faithful? Are you going to continue to be devoted? And so we are tested. Will we submit to the temptation or will we allow the test to help us to grow spiritually. We're told that the Israel was told to love, to follow, to revere or to fear, to obey and to worship and to be devoted, to hold fast to God and the message that they were receiving. Verse 5. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death. That ends 
that message, that prophecy, that evil message. Because he has spoken in order to turn you away from the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of bondage to entice you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall put away the evil from your midst. That was the way that God told Israel to remove an evil. Now, this doesn't apply to us today. We're not executing someone because they say that they thought they've spoken tongues or they can perform miracles. This was for the Mosaic law. The death penalty for a false prophet was appropriate for if he successfully seduced people into idolatry, then he would bring them under God's judgment. By avoiding them, you would also avoid judgment. Killing a false prophet was a way to purge the evil from Israel. The need to maintain national purity was emphasized by Moses. Moses knew there were going to be challenges. There were going to be tests. There was going to be seduction in the land of Canaan. And he was warning Israel about that. So we're told that they were to purge the evil. And by the way, in Deuteronomy, we will read, you must purge the evil nine times. Moses is going to remind them that uh, being unfaithful was a problem, a problem that was requiring purging the evil. All right, verses 6 through 11. The dangers of family pressures. Here we are. Periodically, we are faced by this. But in Israel, this was could be a significant problem. Even when a close relative exerted pressure to lead one astray, another individual in the family to lead them astray, the individual had the responsibility not to ignore it, but to bring it to public trial, even if that meant the execution of the offender. So notice that this was to bring, to be brought to public. So this is not just an individual deciding that they're going to execute somebody. No, it needs to be brought to the public public square. All right, verse 6 through verse 11. If your brother, and then notice how, how Moses details this. He doesn't just say of somebody in the family. He actually tells them, if your brother, the son of your mother, your son or your daughter, the wife of your bosom, and this is a figure of speech, meaning the, a wife that you love. Hopefully you love your wife. This is a phrase that says the wife you love. Or your friend, who is your own soul. In other words, this is a very close friend. If they secretly entice you, saying, let us go and serve other gods, which you have not known, neither you nor your fathers of the gods of the people, which are all around you, Canaanites, near to you or far off from you, from one end of the earth or to the other ends of the earth. 
You shall not consent to him, first of all. You shall not listen to him, nor shall you shall your eye pity him, nor shall you shall you spare him or conceal him, but you shall surely kill him. Your hand shall be the first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. And you shall stone him with stones until he dies, because he sought to entice you, to seduce you, away from the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. So all Israel shall hear and fear, and not again do such wickedness as among you. Notice its deterrence. There is capital punishment. The Bible teaches that there is deterrence with capital punishment. We're reading it right here. Verse 6. If your brother, the song of your mother, the son of your mother, your son or your daughter, the wife of your bosom, the, the wife you love, or your friend who is as your own soul, your closest friend, secretly, notice that this isn't done publicly, and if it even comes secretly, there's a responsibility here, secretly entices, tempts you, saying, let us go and serve, worship other gods, which you have not known, not part of Israel's worship, neither you nor your fathers, your ancestors, of the gods of the people which are all around you, near to you or far off from you, from one end of the earth to the other end of the earth. All right. These two verses, perhaps the most tragic and painful of these situations that Moses is going to address, was the temptation to idolatry by a loved one, a close member of the family, member of the family, or a love, a love, uh, a friend. He showed that he understood the depths of the tragedy as he deliberately described the various relationships involved with endearing terminology. In other words, Paul was trying to express how important this was, even if it was someone who was very close to you, because it would be very easy for us to say, well, it's my son, or it's my daughter, or it's my wife, or it's my brother. And so Moses, I may have said Paul, Moses details this situation. So the relationships were very close. Unlike the the preceding case in which false prophets openly attempted to seduce the people into idolatry, this temptation was offered secretly and individually. The absurdity of the temptation is heightened by Moses' explanation of the other gods. They are gods that neither you nor your fathers, your ancestors, have known. So Moses is saying, it's not that you really didn't know about Baal or Molech. Uh, It's not that you didn't know of these others, but they're not part of the guidance, the Mosaic law that you've been given. And so it's not that you weren't familiar with them, but it's not part of your spiritual life. 
Moses did not mean that the people had not known about these gods intellectually, but they had not known them experientially. These other gods had done nothing for Israel and never, they never would. Why? Because they are dead. They are empty. They are not alive. They don't exist. Verse 8. Now we're going to see four actions that they're not supposed to do and then one that they are to do. Verse 8. You shall not consent to him. Secondly, you shall listen to him. So we're being told, don't even listen to him. You're not, first of all, you're not going to say, oh, okay, well, let's, uh, let's take a shot at this. So the first thing is, you're not to consent. Secondly, you're not to listen. Thirdly, you shall not, your eyes shall not pity him. You shouldn't feel sorry for him. You shouldn't have uh, an emotional uh, response here saying, uh, I don't think I'm going to be able to turn this guy in. Sorry. You can't have pity for them. You can't feel sorry for them. Fourth, nor shall you spare him or conceal him. In other words, something's happened here that needs to be addressed. Chapter 9, now we see what you should do, but you shall surely kill him. Your hand shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all people. So what should happen? Execution. This needs to be removed. And again, as I've said, notice that this is not just an individual act, although uh, because it's close to you, it's something that you need to learn, and you need to be able to face this and be obedient, faithful to God. And the, the congregation, as we could say, of them, the nation, the tribe, the family, the clan, was to participate as well. Why? Because this was a lesson. It was a way of learning about God and the requirement of God. Verse 10, And you shall stone him with stones until he dies, because he sought to entice you, to seduce you away from the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. You'll notice that the Lord always returns to the historical blessings that he's done for Israel. And he reminds them of this. Would you prefer to be back down in Egypt? Of course, some of them would say, yes, I would. Why? Because they are not faithful to God. And they think by going back to Egypt, they'll uh, have a wonderful life. Well, while they were there, it was, as described by the Bible, it was the firm, furnace. It was a hot and dreadful place. And so God brings them out. They were brought from the house of bondage, from slavery. Let's move now to verse 11. So all Israel shall hear. In other words, they're all going to learn. They're all going to uh, learn from this experience. So all Israel shall hear and fear and not again do such uh, wickedness as this among you. So the, the result of such a severe action would be that all Israel would hear about the extraordinary 
devotion to the Lord and be afraid to disobey him. This is precisely what Moses was demanding of the people, an extraordinary commitment to God who had shown extraordinary grace to the nation. Now, let's get to verse or to our last point here, the destruction of an apostate town. So we're no longer talking about uh, just an individual or maybe even a family. Now we're talking about a town, verses 12 through 18. Verse 12, if you hear someone in one of your cities, which the Lord your God gives you to dwell in, saying, Corrupt men have gone out from among you and enticed the inhabitants of their city, saying, Let us go and worship other gods, serve other gods, which you have not known. Then you shall inquire, search out, and ask diligently. In other words, there's an investigation being done here. And if it is indeed true and certain that such an abomination was committed among you, you shall surely strike the inhabitants of that city with the edge of the sword, utterly destroying it, all that is in it and its livestock, with the edge of the sword. And you shall gather all of its plunder, all of its property, into the middle of the street, we would probably say in the, in the center square of the city. And you shall gather all its plunder into the middle of the this uh, street and completely burn with fire the city and all its plunder for the Lord your God. It shall be a heap forever. It shall not be built again. So none of the accused things shall remain in your hand. The accused thing here we're going to see in the previous verse and also here is one of the words that we've, we'll remember from uh, Joshua and that is the Hebrew word cherem, which means to devote to God, devoted to the band. In other words, it was something that is given to God. It uh, belongs to God. And because it's God, he, can, he may do with it as he pleases. Uh, and almost every time that this phrase, this Hebrew phrase is used, it's because something is so evil it needs to be completely destroyed, utterly destroyed, as we read here in our passage. Verse 17, So none of the accursed things shall remain in your hand, that the Lord may turn from the fierceness of his anger, and we would say from his justice, his judgment that's ongoing, and show you mercy, have compassion on you, and multiply you. Just as he swore to your fathers, what is he saying? You remove the evil in order that God may bless you. If you don't, you will be judged. Verse 18, because you have listened to the voice of the Lord your God to keep all his commandments, which I command you today to do what is right in the eyes of the Lord your God. So they should be obedient. All right. Let me work our way through these rather quickly. This is the destruction of an apostate town. I think I can move through it rather quickly. If you hear, Shema, love it again, Shema. If you hear, if you listen, if you obey someone in one of your cities, uh, if you hear this, which the Lord your God gives to you uh, to occupy, saying, uh, corrupt or worthless men 
have gone out from among you. The word here for corrupt or worth, worthless, you've heard previously as sons of Bilal. That's what this Hebrew phrase says. They are worthless. They're worthless because they are faithless. They are worthless because they uh, they do not add to our spiritual lives. That's why they're worthless. It's not because they don't have capability. Worthless men have gone out from among you and enticed, seduced you, the inhabitants of their city, saying, let us go and worship other gods which you have not known or we have not previously worshipped. Verse 14, then you shall inquire. And I think a better word here is you shall investigate. In other words, you don't just hear. It's not hearsay. And so you say, okay, let's get out the torches. No, you need to investigate this. You need to confirm. You shall inquire. You shall investigate. You shall search and ask diligently. And if it is indeed true and certain that such an abomination such a detestable act was committed among you, you shall, then you shall surely strike or attack the inhabitants of that city with the edge of the sword. I love the way that uh, the Hebrew describes a sword. The blade, here it's dry, it's described as the mouth of the sword. Now, why would they describe it as the mouth of the sword? Because the sword devours you. That's the sense of what the Hebrew means. There's another uh, another description of the blade called the lip, the lip of the sword. And in Hebrew, the lip of the sword means it's the uh, the edge. Uh, To be struck by the lip of the sword means you're struck by the uh, the edge of the sword. And that's why other languages are so great. We get an English translation, but if you're reading it in the original language, it just has, I believe, more of a, a sense, has more significance. So it says, um, you will strike, you will attack the inhabitants of the city, with the edge of the sword, utterly destroying. And this word here, utterly destroying, is our cherem, something that is devoted to God. So uh, when God says, this is my city, you will destroy it and you will burn everything. This is being devoted to God. All that is in it and its livestock, livestock, with the edge of the sword, the mouth of the sword shall devour them. And you shall gather all the plunder, the property, into the middle of the street, into the square, and completely burn with fire the city and all its plunder. For the Lord your God, and you shall burn it for the Lord your God. That tells us that this belongs to God. God has claimed it. It shall be a heap. It shall be a pile it shall be a uh, a ruin, we could say, forever. It, the city, shall not be built again. Completely burned. And when we say it's completely burned, there's another way to understand this, is that this is a whole burn offering. It is an offering to God. When a city or a property was completely destroyed, it was offered or it was devoted 
to the Lord. Verse 17. So none of the accursed things shall remain in your hand, but the Lord may, first of all, turn from the fierce of his anger, his justice. Secondly, he will show you mercy. God shows mercy to us because of our faithfulness and our obedience to what he tells us to do. He demonstrates mercy. Third, have compassion on you. And then fourth, multiply you, just as he swore to your fathers, to your ancestors. Because you have listened to the voice of the Lord your God to keep all his commandments, which I command you today, to do what is right in the eyes of the Lord your God. We do what is right in the eyes of the Lord, not in our own eyes. And we see this contrast very often in judges. So the the punishment here of this sin was to be so drastic that before any action was taken, the truth of the, the report must be confirmed by a thorough investigation. If the report was confirmed, then the town was to be d- treated like a Canaanite city. Why? Because that's precisely what they are doing. They're following after the Canaanites. They were to set aside for complete destruction. The fact that all the plunder was to be destroyed, uh, that it was never to be rebuilt, the city, precluded any greed or illegitimate motivation by those who were carrying out its destruction. And you'll remember that that's what happened at I. Achan uh, decided that he was going to take some of the individ- some of the items for himself. And God says, no, we're destroying it completely. So we're not destroying this city or these people for greedy uh, or vengeance. There's nothing there for them. For the believer today, just an application. For the believer today, these passages teach us that we are to be obedient to our God. Disobedience or being unfaithful not only displeases God, but but brings discipline into our lives, sometimes severe. What we should understand as we read about Israel, our example, is that sin disrupts our relationship with God and it uh, disrupts our daily lives. We must strengthen our spiritual lives by reading God's word, spending time in prayer, and devoting ourselves to God during both times of pleasure and during adversity. Spirits in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we're thankful for these passages. We're thankful for Moses' clear messages uh, of what Israel is to do. But Father, we apply it to us. We don't, as I've often said, we don't view Israel critically or uh, judgmentally. We see them in the mirror of the word of God and we apply what we learn from them in our lives. We're thankful, Father, again for your blessings to us. Whether sometimes it seems that they're difficult, we know that we are in your hand. We know that you provide for us. We know that you love us and what happens in our lives are 
within your plan and your provision. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.